Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Um, you're stuck with me for the next four weeks. Are you excited about that? We're, we're starting a series in the book of Revelation for the next four weeks. We're going to give an overview, and I stress overview, because there is so much in the book of Revelation. And when we were coming to the end of our three-year journey through the Bible with the Gospel Project curriculum, Revelation's last book of the Bible, it's the last book we're going to study on our three-year journey, and then we're going to be done. Can you believe it? We're going to be done with the Gospel Project. Incredible. We're going to have gone all the way through the Bible in the last three years. Who's been with us for that whole journey, the last three years? You've gone right through the Bible. Who has read the weekly readings all the way through the Bible? You've read through the Bible in the last three years. Anybody say that? Yeah, that's pretty cool. As a church, we've gone through the Bible. We're in the book of Revelation. Over the next four weeks, it's going to be an overview. And the word revelation simply means unveiling, revealing, when God pulls back the curtain, hence all the windows, this idea of through the windows, through the window. What did John see through the window? What did God reveal to him, to the seven churches, and therefore for us as well? What did, God, what did John see? That's the question. Who do we see? What do we see when we look through the window? So let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Get my uh, little handy-dandy gadget on here. Here we go. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. I don't even have the right verse. Look at that. We're off to... Oh, here we go. Look at this. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that just say it all right there? Like, when I heard we were coming to the book of Revelation and I could have the opportunity and immense privilege of, of teaching through it, first of all, I was scared. Secondly, I thought, ah, I'm, I'm not really one for eschatology. Can I admit that? Like, if you want to talk to somebody about eschatology, talk to Pastor Steve and let me know what he says. Because it's never been a big forte of mine. I have to be honest, I haven't really studied into the book of Revelation since I was in Bible school. The books that I read to prepare for this are the books that I read in Bible school. And I wanted to come out here and say, look, it's as simple as this. Jesus wins, and if you know Jesus, you win. End of story. That's the book of Revelation, isn't it? I think, should we pack up? Let's go to the beach. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, his messenger. Angels carried messages to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Let me point out a few things. God gave the revelation to show... to gave him, Jesus, to show his servants, John, the churches, us. You remember when Jesus made that statement in the Gospels when he said, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father, not even the angels, but only the Father. The Father shows the Son, shows his servants. And I want to point this out. Don't miss this. The testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
When, when we read through the book of Revelation, when we talk about the book of Revelation, oftentimes we talk about this sequence of events, this timeline of events. People want to attach a date to it. People want to attach time frames to it. And there are some time frames in it that we're going to talk about, but it's not necessarily a sequence of events. Here's what happened first, second, third. That's not necessarily what it is. It's what John sees next through the window. I want you to get this picture in your mind as we're going to see as we study through it. John's called up to heaven to see these visions, to see through the window. It's constantly saying, I turned and saw. I looked and saw. Come up here and see, John. Turn and see, John. Look over here and see, John. It's as if John is traveling through the corridor of heaven, if there is such a thing, and he's looking through this window and this window and this window, and he's getting all of these revelations that Jesus Christ is showing through the window, the revelation of Jesus Christ, all that he saw. Here's what frustrates me about the book of Revelation. When you start talking about the book of Revelation, there's usually two crowds. There's the people who care way too much and the people who care way too little. And there's not a lot in between. Have you found that to be true? Like you talk to some people about the book of Revelation. Oh, what stance are you going to take? What about current events? What about what we're seeing in the news from the Middle East? Doesn't that tie into the symbolism from the book? And they're always trying to connect the dots. And it's almost a little obsessive on the book of Revelation. It's part of God's word. We need to love it. We need to study it. We need to meditate on it. But there are people who almost take an obsession to it. And then on the other side of the coin, there's people who just totally avoid it. Like I was talking to somebody just the other week who said, hey, I was going to listen to you preach until I found out it was the book of Revelation. Right? And I have to admit, I've kind of been in that second category. My thought has always been, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're raptured before the tribulation, the millennium, all that, then what does it matter? It's, it's really just a call to evangelism, isn't it? And if evangelism is our response, great. Why do we need to know all of this symbolism? Well, that's why I agreed to study this through and preach it. This is going to be a big challenge for me right here. Does anybody like knowing the end of the story before you dig into the story? Who, who is that old radio broadcaster who always said, and now you know the rest of the story? I used to listen to that when we were driving in the car back and forth to high school. I, I was talking to somebody who was telling me a bit of their testimony, and they said when they first started coming to church and they first wanted to see if all these things in the Bible were true, they thought, I'm going to flip to the end of the book and see what it's all about. So the very first book of the Bible they read was the book of Revelation. And let me tell you, it messed them up. They didn't, they didn't know what to think after that. They weren't sure. They needed a lot of correcting after what they dug into and what they watched on YouTube. When we look through the window of the book of Revelation, we end up seeing all of God's redemptive story, past, present, and future. A lot of times we think of Revelation, we think of future Revelation, future prophecy. When we think of Revelation, which we get our English term apocalypse from, we think chaos and craziness that's going to come in the future. But actually what you find in the book of Revelation is the storyline of the whole Bible. We've just come through three years studying the storyline of the Bible, and Revelation is a true climax and a conclusion. It goes back through the Bible and basically hints at all these points through Scripture and gives fulfillment, gives completion. There are over 400 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. 
Matt Chandler, pastor at Village Church in Dallas, Texas, just preached 12 weeks on the book of Revelation. He did it much better than I'm going to do it. So if you want to dig deeper, Village Church, Dallas, Texas, listen to what Matt Chandler has to say. But he says, he goes so far as to say the book of Revelation doesn't show us anything new that the rest of the Bible hasn't already shown us. It just clarifies and confirms and fulfills what the rest of Scripture has already said. Over 400 references to the Old Testament. And we're going to look at a number of them today. You know, part of the reason that I struggle with the book of Revelation is all the symbolism. There's a ton of symbolism in and throughout the book. Wouldn't it be easier if he just said, literally, this is what I'm seeing? Literally, I like things literal. I like things black and white. But the thing about symbolism is a picture paints a thousand words, doesn't it? And symbolism kind of calls out this inner hunger, this, this inner emotion, an empathy, a mission. It calls out more than just some literal storyline could do. The symbolism paints a deep picture to evoke our emotion. This is a true conclusion, a true fulfillment, a finish, and it's all about Jesus. Let's look at verse 8. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, now, what is Alpha and Omega? Does anybody know? Beginning and end. The first letter of the Greek alphabet. The last letter of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. Jesus is the beginning and the end. The whole storyline is about Jesus. We're going to see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus throughout Revelation. Says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation is not just something that's going to happen in the future. It's something that's happening now. It's something that happened in the past. He who was and who is, who is to come, the Almighty. It's all about Jesus. My hope is to dig into the first four chapters today, okay? That's, that's what we're going to try and do. And we're going to see the first thing that John receives as he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. That's where John is. It's about... 95 AD. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What's the Lord's day? Sunday, first day of the week. We set aside the first day, the first fruits to Jesus. He rose again on Sunday. We were gathered on Sunday because Sunday's the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. That would scare you, wouldn't it? <laughs> right what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches, and here are the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Do any of those names ring a bell? These, these are seven literal geographic locations in ancient Asia Minor. These are seven real churches. Some commentators say they're also indicative and illustrate the seven stages of church history from this time to the modern era. And there are some correlations, but ultimately, really, this is written to seven real churches, just like this church. This is the voice of Jesus, sounding like a trumpet, with a message to seven churches. But at the end of each message, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Do you have ears? I have ears, two of them. Which means, what's written to these churches is also written for our understanding and for our benefit. It's not written to us, it's not written to our context, but it's written to these churches for us, okay? 
Now, there aren't many things in life that are ever truly completed, are there? Do you ever feel that? You get to the end of a busy week and you think, oh, man, there's still things on the task list that now I have to go to next week. There's still potty training. I thought we were done with that stage. There's still bills to be paid, even though they were due last month. And it just, you know, we, we left our home in New Brunswick. We drove out the driveway for the last time. We were just talking about that the other day. And you, got, you get this weird sense of emotion, like this might be the last time. This will probably be the last time we ever pull out of this driveway. And it's kind of a chapter of your life that's done. It's finished. It's complete. But it's not complete because that house is still there. And you can still drive by and see how the current owners aren't really mowing the lawn <laughs> or taking care of the garden. Somebody else is living the story in that house. It's never truly done. Is it? Fulfillment. The number seven throughout scripture symbolizes and signifies fulfillment, completion, finished work. You think of the six days of creation, God rested on the seventh day. That's why we have our our seven-day week. And different cultures in different eras have tried different number of days in the week. It just doesn't work because seven is what God set out as the days of the week. You remember the story of when Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. I'm, that's the song lyric. He didn't really fight it. God fought it for him. But do you remember they, they walked around the walls of Jericho? How many days? Seven, seven yes. They, they walked once, six days, but then on the seventh day, they walked how many times? And then how many priests blew how many trumpets? Seven, 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 seven. Through, throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to see seven, 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 seven. The book of Revelation is full of numbers, and they are symbols. They're significant of things. Seven is significant of completion, fulfillment. This truly is the conclusion of the whole redemptive story. Jesus as the conquering king. Look at verses 12 and 13. We've got to keep moving. Then I turn to see. Do you see that? John turns, and he sees. Now he's looking through a different window. John turns and sees the voice that was speaking to me. And upon turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man. Now, who has the title of son and man throughout the the New Testament? Jesus. Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands. And Jesus later on says the lampstands are the churches. Jesus is in the midst of of the churches. Should that bring us comfort today? The seven churches that John is writing to with this vision, this revelation from Jesus, are in tough times. Man, persecution is rampant. It's 95 AD. The emperor of Rome, Caesar, was telling everybody that they need to worship him as Lord and God, and if they didn't, there was persecution. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm in the midst of the churches. We are the hands and feet of Christ, aren't we? We are his body. Jesus is in the midst of the churches. That's comforting. Now look how Jesus is described. This is really important. This sets up the outline for the rest of the message today when we look at these seven churches. Verses 13 to 16 of Revelation chapter 1. Son of man that we just read. John turns, sees the lampstand, the son of man in the midst of the lampstand. And it says he's clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That speaks to the fact that he is king and judge. He is the royal king and he is the honorable judge. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. That, that speaks of the term for God, ancient of days. It speaks to his eternality, that God dwells outside of time, that Jesus has always existed. He was never created. He will never come to an end. I'm trying to explain that one to my son, and it's proving very difficult. Eternal. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Fire and bronze speaks to the altar of judgment, which was made of bronze, which the fire would burn on top of. You know the verses about uh, consuming it with fire to see, see what is left, refined by the fire, testing it by fire, what is left over. Is it just wood, hay, and stubble? Or is it precious stones? Refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. As I was reading Warren Wiersbe's commentary, he talked about Niagara Falls. Now, i got to show you a video of Niagara Falls because we were just there 2019. It was the last time I was on a plane before COVID. Do we have that video there? I just want you to hear the sound of the water as it comes down. And think about how Jesus has a voice of many waters. Our sound man's running back there filling in. Thanks, John. We appreciate that. How many people have been to Niagara Falls? Don't turn it down. Crank it up. It's, It's pretty powerful, isn't it? You try and you try and preach over Niagara Falls, it's pretty hard. And Jesus has a voice like many mighty rushing waters, like the roar of many waters. That's Jesus' voice. How cool is that? In his right hand, thank you, John, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You know Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing joint marrow, soul, and spirit. Two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That reminds me of the Mount of Transfiguration. When Moses shows up, who uh, illustrates the law, Elijah shows up, who illustrates the prophets. There you have the whole of the Old Testament paying homage and adoration to Jesus Christ, who's transfigured and his clothes are white as wool. More than any earthly launderer could whiten, could bleach. White, stunning, shining, full strength. You ever looked at the sun shining in its full strength? (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it. You know, the sun blesses, it it gives crops, but it, it also judges It it burns, doesn't it? The sun, consuming fire. This is the one who is speaking to the churches. When when we gather on Sundays, and we have fellowship, uh, we have music, we, we have giving, we have message, the whole idea is to set our gaze and our focus and on our attention, our adoration, our worship on Jesus. And I think a lot of Sundays we kind of casually brush in and out and, you know, maybe Jesus is a good friend who cares for me, who looks out for me when I'm having a bad day. But maybe this isn't the Jesus that we see Sunday to Sunday. Maybe when we pray in Jesus' name, we're thinking of a lowly carpenter from Nazareth and not necessarily the Son of God, the conquering King who's seated on his Father's throne over heaven. This is Jesus. This is is who's speaking to the seven churches. Now, what's his message to each church? This is what we're going to hone in on. Now, this is significant. Everything Jesus just described himself as and more, let, let me read verses 17 and 18. He says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. 
the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That's the gospel. Jesus came, lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again from the tomb, defeating death, giving us forgiveness from sins, giving us new life. This is the story of the Bible that's being concluded. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is Jesus. As we look at the seven churches, Jesus is going to clarify and choose just one aspect of his person that he described here to apply to each church. And here's the point. Jesus is what you need. Jesus is who you need. Jesus is the one. In him is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the resurrection and the life. He is all you need. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he applies himself to each church, saying, this is what you need. Let, let me show you how. Let's look at the first church, chapter 2. Moving right along, chapter 2, and, and we've got uh, 18 minutes left. To the angel at the church in Ephesus, a real place in ancient Asia Minor, write this. Jesus is telling John, here's the message to send to this church. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That was included in his description of who he was, right? Jesus is in and amongst the church. He's got the seven stars in his right hand. Uh, Warren Wearsby suggests that stars, messengers, sometimes translated angels, may actually be referring to pastors and elders Deacons, leaders in the local church, the ones who bring the message week in and week out. He suggests that maybe that's what it's referring to. Jesus is among the church. Jesus is in the church, walking with the church. And Jesus is holding the leadership of the church in his right hand. Potentially, that's what this is pointing to. See, we're getting into the symbolism. I'm, I'm using terms like potentially, right? Ephesus. Jesus is holding the seven stars. He's walking in and around the church. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I'm just going to paraphrase here, your work, your patience, your testing, your perseverance, the fact that you hate false teaching and idol worship, awesome. Let me commend you for that, church in Ephesus. I love how he starts out with the good, <laughs> right? When somebody comes with good news and bad news, they say, which one do you want first? Choose the good news first. And then Jesus says, but here's the problem. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Other translations say you've left your first love. Which happens so easy, doesn't it? And how many churches got into it for all the right reasons, and the passion was there, and the excitement, and the focus on Jesus Christ, the adoration and worship on him. But then we get our focus on secondary things. We forget to keep the main thing the main thing. And a church like Ephesus that's so busy doing so well, taking care of false teachers and refusing to idol worship and busy, 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 making sure everything's right and correct and precise and excellent, has forgotten the whole heart behind why they're there as a local church. Remember when you were dating and all you wanted to do was just be with that person? Right? It doesn't matter what you were doing. You'd walk through a snowstorm to be with that person. Then you fast forward 10, 20, 30 years. It's so easy to trade time together for the busyness of everyday life, isn't it? Sure, you're a great team. You get through it, but you're really connecting. Is there any intimacy? Are, are you, you together? 
Have you forgotten your first love? Have you forgotten the reason why Jesus says to the overcomer, which is a message he says for every church, to the overcomer, if you listen to my commendation, if you listen to the thing that I point out about your church and what I tell you to do about it, if you listen, you can overcome. He says to the overcomer at the church in Ephesus, eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Doesn't that just take you back to the book of Genesis? The early days of creation? Adam walking in the garden, Eve the cool of the day, walking with God, fellowship, communion, the way things are supposed to be, nothing separating them, no shame, no embarrassment, no fig leaves yet. Intimacy, communion, connection. The tree of life is there, walking with God. Come back to your first love, Jesus says. He, say, he says, I'm walking with you. I'm holding you. Isn't that, isn't that a picture of romance right there? Long walks on the beach, carrying her, carrying the bride. We know that the church is the bride of Christ. I'm here for connection. I'm here for intimacy. And then Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Remember, this isn't written to us. We're not the church in Ephesus, but it is written for us. We can hear, we can learn from and take application from this message to the church in Ephesus. We have ears, let's hear. Let's, let's not abandon our first love. My wife has this quote that I really like, that she really likes. She read it to me. It says, Am I doing this in an effort to be loved? Or am I doing this because I'm loved? Everything we do as a church should come from the love of Jesus Christ. You remember as we were going through the book of Acts and Steve pointed out it was the love of Christ that compelled Paul. We get to love because he first loved us. Everything flows out of that. When you lose your love, do you know what it becomes? It just becomes work becomes work. Second church, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Part of the description that Jesus uses for himself when he first arrives and appears before John. Smyrna was a church full of poverty, persecution, Tough times, suffering. Jesus even talks about how they would spend a short time in prison. He says 10 years, but in in the New Testament, there's a couple references where 10 years is significant of a short time. It's symbolic of a short time. It might not necessarily be 10 years, but they would spend a short time in prison. Smyrna was an imperial city of Rome. And in AD 95, that meant that there would be intense pressure to hail Caesar as Lord and God. And Smyrna stood up to the test. Jesus says, continue to be faithful to the overcomer, the one who overcomes, you will receive the crown of life. I have to imagine that one of their big fears would be death, right? Because that's, that's what this persecution was really coming to. That's what would happen. If you balked at the idea and the pressure to worship Caesar as Lord and God, it could cost you your life. And Jesus says, And the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. You you don't need to fear death. You remember what Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because I get to be with Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what the church in Smyrna needed to hear. This, This is the encouragement that Jesus is sending through John to these seven churches. Church number three, Pergamum, Pergamos. Revelation chapter two and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. The words of him who has the sharp 
two-edged sword. Now, I pointed out that this is the word of God. It's like a sharp two-edged sword, dividing. Pergamum, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, double-edged sword. You know, the sword is also the symbol of the Roman proconsul. So maybe there's, there's dual meaning here for the church, the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was known as the greatest city in Asia Minor, where the first temple to Caesar was dedicated. Maybe that's why Jesus says, you dwell where Satan's throne is. That's Jesus' message to the church. But you hold fast to my name. Even, even one of you was martyred for my name. But some of you hold to Balaam's teaching. You eat idols' food. You're sexually immoral. Uh, it talks about the Nicolaitans' doctrine. Nicolaitans' doctrine. Um, all this comes from Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, which you can read where 24,000 people died because they were deceived by the prophet Balaam and King Balak's invitation to join them. Because they partnered up with King Balak and his nation, because they married with them, 24,000 people of God's people died. The group of infiltrators into this church in Pergamum were saying, just be friendly with Rome. You know, you can be friends with the world. When, when the Romans say you have to worship Caesar as Lord and God, you could just like kind of say it half-heartedly, maybe just sprinkle a little bit of incense on the altar, you know. Surely God's not going to judge you for that, right? Just be friendly with Rome and compromise so quickly catches fire, doesn't it? Just a small step, just a little lie, just going to see where the line is. How far can I go? You know, when you're asking how far you can go, you're asking the wrong question. Now, I'm not hurting anyone. But eventually, you're so far from the truth, compromise has bent and tossed you. You know, the term Pergamum means married. Affairs don't happen all at once. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, today I'm going to leave my spouse. Small steps, compromise. And then one day this church woke up and realized, oh wow, spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to Jesus. <laughs> that one look so quickly turns into a habit and then you're stuck. So how do you get unstuck? If something's stuck, how do you get it unstuck? Any moms out there who deal with messes all the time? Some stuck. How do you get it unstuck? Jesus has the word of his mouth, the sword of the spirit, which is able to divide. Even the most precise division, joint and marrow, soul and spirit. The word of God is, is what reveals the compromise and what shows us the true path of righteousness. Jesus says, to the overcomer will be given the hidden manna, the daily bread, the daily portion. How do you keep from compromise? You hold tight to his word, daily in his word, keeping the truth ever before your eyes. Let's keep moving on. Thyatira, uh, chapter 2 and verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I pointed out that fire and bronze are indicative of the altar, which was made of bronze, the fire would burn on top, which speaks of judgment, judgment. You know, throughout all of these chapters and all of this judgment and all of this wrath, there's all this mercy that comes into it as well. 
And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point some, some of that out. Even this letter that is being sent to these churches as a warning, letting them know Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have just left them to their, themselves, given them over to their hard hearts, let them go. But instead, he sends this message of mercy. Turn back. Make a change. Jesus, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like brass. He who searches the minds and hearts and gives according to their works. Jesus says, your work, your love, your service, your faith, your patience, awesome. Let me commend you on that. And then he says, but you have allowed Jezebel, which probably isn't a woman named Jezebel. It's a symbol tying back to the Old Testament woman named Jezebel to seduce sexually an idolatry, offering food offered to idols. Jezebel was the queen who seduced Israel into Baal worship. You can read about that in 1 Kings 16 and 19. It's like the church in Thyatira wasn't thinking. They were just loving. You know, what, what's my heart telling me to do? I'm just going to chase after that. It's kind of interesting because the church in Ephesus had all of the thinking and the academia and the false teaching fought off, but they didn't have any heart. And then here, Thyatira has all heart, all love, all compassion, but no truth. And they're just giving themselves over to false doctrine. You want to talk about love. The next thing Jesus says is, I gave her time to repent and she did not. Mercy. This results in great tribulation. Jesus says, hold fast to what you have until I come. Verse 25 is the first mention of Jesus coming for his church. Verse 25 of Revelation chapter 2. And as in verse 18, Jesus will judge his, his church first. His judgment is always with mercy and loving kindness. Let's look at the church in Sardis. The angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. Some translations translate this sevenfold spirit, the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit, not lacking anything, the spirit of God and the seven stars. Sardis. You know, Sardis was a dead town. It was a ghost town. So was the church. Twice, the citadel, the tower in Sardis, had been attacked. It had failed to do its job because people weren't at their post. They weren't watching. They were unfaithful, unloyal. They didn't keep their eyes open. The church was the same. The church was comfortable. The church was asleep. You know, no friction usually means no motion. There's no mess in the barn. There's usually no productivity. In, in name, they were in lo- alive, but in reality, they were dead. A dead church. Jesus says, remember what you heard, what you received. You should have held fast. Always talking about the glory days the way things used to be. You remember that old ministry in the 90s that brought all the people into the church, praise God for that, but nothing's happening today. Sardis. We've all seen abandoned church buildings everywhere, up for sale, decrepit, left to die. We know that the church is not a building, but we've all heard church bodies that were stuck in the 50s. There's no modern drive. It's, It's all about the old glory days. 
And we need to understand also a busy church doesn't necessarily mean a living church. Just because we're active and we're moving, we could be the greatest community center for social gatherings ever, but we'd still be a dead church because it's the spirit of God that breathes life, revitalization. You remember in Acts chapter 2, wait for my spirit, but when power has come upon you, then you will be my witnesses. And the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and revival broke out. Power, speaking in tongues, people got saved. The Holy Spirit brings revival, brings life, brings power. Jesus says to the one who overcomes clothes of white, your name will not be blotted out. What the church needed was the Spirit of God. Let's move along. Philadelphia, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, what does Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That speaks to authority. If Jesus has the key, he has the authority. If Jesus can shut the door and lock the door, and he's the one to unlock the door and open the door, he's the one in control of the door, he's in all authority. And that's kind of the situation in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was known as the doorway to the east, the gateway to the east, which is a huge opportunity. In the New Testament, they referred to opportunities given by God as doors of opportunity. You remember Paul chasing down the door of opportunity. A door of opportunity was given to us to preach the gospel. Well, here Philadelphia is a huge opportunity. Everyone from Rome traveling to the east goes through Philadelphia. It's the doorway to the east. Huge opportunity. The area was actually prone to earthquakes. The city was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 BC. Apparently, there's not a lot of security in the city of brotherly love. The church was small in number, but they were great in faithfulness, which I would suggest is more important. God can do great things through a few. And if Jesus offers an open door, he's going to give the power to go through it. Little strength. They kept the word. They did not deny. Jesus says, I have loved you. I'll keep you from the hour of trial, which will come to the whole world. This, this is the paraphrase of what the Bible says after verse 7. Hold fast. That, this sounds like the church will not have to endure the great tribulation. And that ties into my understanding of eschatology from 1 Thessalonians 1.10, chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. You can look those up. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. We'll get into some more timelines as we move forward into the coming weeks. Let's look at Laodicea. So many people know the church of Laodicea. When we talk about the seven churches, the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The firstborn. Jesus is faithful and true. He's loyal and pure. He's constant. He's not wavering. He's unchanging. The church in Laodicea, not so much. Jesus says, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Probably remember that if you've been in church for any time. Cold. Colossae, which was one of the neighbors, had pure cold water. They were known for their pure springs of cold water. Aeropolis, which is not too far away, was known for their hot springs. And then Warren Wearsby points out, if you were to pipe both of those into Laodicea, it'd be lukewarm by the time it got there. They say, we are rich. 
we have no need. We're comfortable. We're complacent. Jesus says, you're really blind. Interestingly enough, it was Laodicea that was known for their eye salve treatments in helping with the health of the eyes. The second law of thermodynamics says, in a closed system, it will eventually moderate and no longer produce energy. You know what that means? The thermos is eventually going to go cold. And the heat will be lost in a closed system. If we are a closed church, if we are shut off to heaven, to what God wants to do, to what God wants to speak, if we're shut off to our community, who God wants us to love and care for, if we're just a closed little cult up here on the hill, community setter, then the heat's going to be gone. The refreshing, cool water is going to be gone. We're just going to be lukewarm. Jesus says, repent zealously. Jesus says, I stand and knock. If he's standing and knocking, that means he's on the outside. He's no longer inside. Jesus is at the door knocking. When we trust money and comfort and control, we are in turn kicking Jesus off the throne and putting ourselves on the throne, making our little thrones to try and replicate his. Jesus says, to the overcomer, you can sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. And I want you to see this. At the end of every message, he says, to the one who overcomes this reward, to the one who overcomes this reward, to the one who overcomes this reward. But this is all wrapped up in the understanding that Jesus is the ultimate overcomer. 1 John chapter 5, we see that Jesus overcame. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and his testimony. We don't overcome in our own strength. We don't overcome because we hold fast. We overcome because he overcame. And that's the example that we're following. Jesus Christ is the conquering king seated on the throne. That's the picture of the book of Revelation. Now, uh, let me conclude as quickly as I can here. Let's quickly look at chapter 4. I just want to give you this picture The first window that John sees through is these messages to the seven churches. The next window that John sees through, chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, behold a door, standing open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, so Jesus is saying this, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Here's the next thing that John is going to see. Not necessarily a sequence of events, but the next thing that John is permitted to see, the next window through which he looks through. Some commentators suggest that this is what the rapture looks like. This is indicative of the rapture. This is the picture of the rapture. A loud voice like a trumpet, an invitation to come up here. And for that, you can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, After God deals with the church and judges the church first, judgment then can then commence on earth. And that's what we're going to see. But I just want to give you this picture as we come to a conclusion. In chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, and I understand this is small, but this is a big picture. You can see it up here on the screen. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. This is what John saw. At once I was in the Spirit, 
All of this is enabled and empowered and illuminated by the Spirit. This is the ministry, the working of the Holy Spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven. The term throne is used 46 times in the book of Revelation. It's a big theme in Revelation. Jesus, God the Father, they're seated on their throne. One was seated on the throne. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, which might speak to its shape. Some have suggested that this rainbow, like the rainbows you see, they lead to a pot of gold, right? They come to an end, but it's never a true end. You can never find the end, but the book of Revelation is all about fulfillment and end and completion. This rainbow is most likely connected, a complete rainbow, because in heaven, nothing is incomplete. You can see the full thing, and it's pictured here with the throne with God, the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. We're going to receive a crown. Jesus has washed our clothes white as snow. He's given us his righteousness. Potentially, this is a picture of the people of God. In Old Testament sacrificial system, in the covenant of the law, there were 24 segments of Jewish priests. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and there were 12 apostles of Jesus. When you put them together, you get 24. This speaks of the completion, the fulfillment of the people of God. That's the image that commentators point to, the people of God, 24 elders clothed in white, crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. When you hear lightning, you don't hear lightning, do you? You see lightning. When you hear thunder and you hear the, the rush of wind, what do you do? You batten down the hatches, right? You close up the windows. You put away the tent or whatever that's in the backyard. You get ready because it's coming. This is the picture we get in heaven. This, this is the merciful warning. It is coming. Typically, the rainbow comes after the storm. Here it comes before the storm. God is saying to his people, it is coming. Throughout Revelation, you get this idea of imminence. Jesus is coming back. Don't let him catch you like a thief in the night. Be prepared. Be ready. Pay attention to the book of Revelation. The, the ultimate theme in these first four chapters that we've read about is faithfulness to Jesus. Be faithful to Jesus. Don't worry about dates. And I can show you a book that I saw in the mall back 2011, it said the world was going to end in 2012. The Bible says so. Don't put a date to it. Be faithful to Jesus. Put a name to it. Put a name to your future. It's all about Jesus. Um, it talks about the four living creatures after this. I just want to point out Genesis chapter 9 and verse 10. The four living creatures that it points out are these. The lion, the calf, the human, the eagle full of eyes, front and back, six wings, each of them, these crazy-looking creatures. Like, try and draw that on a piece of paper. It would look like a kindergarten's drawing of their family or something like that. It's, it's not necessarily meant to be looked at as a literal picture. It's a symbol. Potentially, it's symbolic of all of creation. Look at this. This is the promise made to Noah 
when the rainbow was originally instituted, when God set his bow in the clouds as a promise that he would never flood the earth again, God's mercy towards us in the midst of judgment, mercy and judgment. God said this, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, right, face like an eagle, one of the living creatures, the livestock, the calf, one of the living creatures, every beast of the earth, the lion, one of the creatures who's a beast of the earth, with you, the human, who's one of the living creatures, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Potentially, this idea of the rainbow and this idea of these four living creatures ties back to God's promise of mercy in the midst of judgment. That he would be merciful, that all of creation would sing his praises for his grace and his mercy towards us as creator God. These living creatures, they don't rest. They're singing holy, holy, holy. The book is filled with singing. The 24 elders, they bow, they throw their crowns, they sing worthy. It's all directed at the lamb who is slain. It's all directed at God who seats on his throne. We tend to worship the creation rather than the creator, Romans 1, 25. But all of creation is worshiping God. You know, worship is all about attention. You ever talk to somebody and you don't have their full attention? Their eyes are darting back and forth. They don't really care about what you're saying. They're thinking about something else. When we worship God, we are giving him our full attention because he's worthy of our attention. When we truly see something breathtaking and awe-inspiring, what do we do? We just stare. We just gaze. Now, I used to have this problem where my mouth hung open <laughs> when I would just be staring off into space. I'm working on that. I'm working on that. But sometimes... Sometimes we say, wow, we just behold the beauty of God the Father. That's worship, our full undivided attention. Okay, let me give you just some applications as we close, then we're going to be done. I'm already 11 minutes over time, but let me say this. Jesus is in the midst of his church. He's walking, he's holding the seven stars. We overcome to sit with Jesus on his throne because he overcame to sit with the Father on his throne. Mercy is granted again and again with warnings and calls to repentance, all the while with justice. Jesus will bring a completeness to the story. Seven, the number of completion, perfection, the beginning and the end. The story really actually comes to a conclusion and the whole redemptive story is brought to a fulfillment. Every story needs a conclusion and we know our conclusion. It's Jesus. Jesus' return is imminent. Let's not be caught like a thief in the night. Let's be prepared. The first open window is reflective on where we're at, but also it's into another realm where the focus is on God's throne. The worship, the overcomer, the winner, the champion, the conqueror. This is a present reality in God's presence. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father God, I want to praise you and thank you for who you are today. God, we thank you for this book of Revelation and all of its complexity and symbolism, pictures. God, we thank you so much for revealing to us more of who you are, how the story comes to a completion, and how ultimately it's all about you. God, we thank you that right from the start, the book of Genesis, you promised this plan of redemption. As we dig into this over the next three weeks, God, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to who you are. 
that we wouldn't just be singing some love song like we would sing to our boyfriend, but God, that we would be singing to the God of all gods, the creator of the universe, who's seated on his throne high and lifted up. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord and that all the glory would be yours, God. We thank you for who you are today. In Jesus' name, amen.